we are continuing our series on bread, or rather using the metaphor of bread to see how in Jesus' hands our lives are like bread, taken, blessed, broken, and then given. Now, how many of you are junk collectors? Or how many of you are willing to admit not very many of you, to being junk collectors. Come on, you guys. I've seen this room fill up to overflowing <laughs> with junk for our rummage sale. I think I'm talking to all of us today, right? I mean, the chances are probably pretty good that somewhere in your garage or maybe out in, down in your basement or something like that, you've got some tools or some furniture or something like that that used to be shiny and new and bright, and now somehow it's become old and maybe even broken and, and unusable. And you've got these great intentions to, to go out and, um, and buy that part and, and fix it so you can use it once again or to shine it up and, and give it a new home. But you never get around to it. And so it just sits there until eventually you just think, oh, what the heck, I'll get rid of it. I mean, that's usually what happens to broken things, right? We purge them from our lives. We get rid of them. They're no longer any use to us. Well, last week we talked about how difficult it is to imagine our ordinary common lives actually being blessed and sacred and holy. And Pastor John in this space talked to us about that. Yet that's exactly what happens when we surrender to Jesus. I mean, we talked about how to be blessed is to have our identity recovered and restored. It's to become who God created us to be, carriers of the glory of God. Well, this week, I want to talk to you about the word broken. Now, we use the word broken to mean a lot of different things, don't we? Sometimes we might use it to describe our own frailty, you know, our, our humanness, the, the experience of running up against our, our limitations, our finiteness. That's not the kind of brokenness I want to talk about today. Another way that we use brokenness is a way to refer to our own failure. I mean, when we come up short or when we, when we miss the mark, when we sin, when we fail at what is required of us in any given situation or relationship, it's then we come face to face with our brokenness. And finally, we sometimes use the word brokenness to refer to the experience of our fallen world. Like when sickness happens or death comes knocking, when tragedies happen and all creation groans. It's that creaking and, and cracking of the world where things seem to be coming apart at the seams. All of these are signs of the brokenness of the world. And it's these last two kinds of brokenness, the brokenness of our failure and the brokenness of our fallen world that I want to look at today. And I want to ask the question, what can Jesus do with our brokenness? I mean, like bread that is broken, do we just become stale? Do we lose our freshness? Do we become useless? Or does Jesus receive our brokenness into his hands and do something amazing with it. I'm reading today from 
the Gospel of Luke in chapter 22, beginning in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, friends, this is the second blessed, broken, given story in Luke's gospel. It's the second time that Jesus takes bread into his hands and blesses it and breaks it and gives it. The first time occurs in Luke 9, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, the feeding of the 5,000. But in Luke 22, the occasion is the Passover meal, the feast which commemorates God's rescue from Israel and brought them out of Egypt. God's judgment over evil. In short, the Passover is when God dealt with sin and evil. He delivered his people by providing a covering of blood over their sins. And that makes this passage, I think, the perfect passage to talk about what Jesus does with our own brokenness. So let's talk first about the brokenness of our failure now, unlike the gods and the priests of other religions in the ancient world that existed, Israel's God provided a sacrifice that was specifically designed for the removal of guilt. The most dramatic way sin was dealt with in Israel's worship came on the day of the year that was known as the Day of Atonement, and still is. And on that day the high priest would first offer sacrifices to cleanse himself of his own sin. And then he would go out to the herd of goats and he would select the two most perfect goats. And he would select one of those goats and he would lay hands on that goat and he would impart on it all of the sins of the nation of Israel. And then he would take that goat out into the wilderness and he would leave it there. He would just leave it there. It was that goat that took the blame and he was led away. A picture, an enacted parable, if you will, of God removing guilt from his people. That goat became the scapegoat. And then the second goat was taken and it was sacrificed. And its blood was sprinkled on the altar inside the Holy of Holies in the temple. And this goat took the punishment upon himself, a picture of God allowing the people to be spared of his judgment. And these elaborate and symbolic acts were found only in the religion of ancient Israel. Their God was the only God who made a way to deal with sin and guilt and shame. And even in the brokenness, of our own sin, we can find a blessing that removes guilt. All the stuff about goats and priests and temples and sacrifices, they were just a foreshadowing 
of what God held in store and what was to come. Because there is one priest who is also the sacrifice, and in fact, he is also the temple. He was so great that he summed up in himself all the three main components of the ancient Israelite religion. And in so doing, he brought fulfillment to its culmination and to its closure, all that God was doing. And his name is Jesus. Jesus, the great high priest. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. Jesus, the true temple. Years later, the writer of Hebrews was so excited about the way these symbols of ancient Israelite worship had come together in their fulfillment in Jesus that he could hardly contain himself. And so, like a good preacher, he wrote down, asking these rhetorical questions, hoping for an amen from the congregation. Listen to these words as he describes them in Hebrews 9. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then with the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God cleanse our consciousness from acts that lead us to death so that we may serve the living one. In ancient Israel there was an old blessing, a prayer that the high priest of Israel would say over the people of God. We find it in Numbers chapter 6, beginning at verse 24. It says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. We sang that very blessing right here in this room last week and proclaimed it over all the people. Hear it again. The Lord blesses you and keeps you. The Lord smile upon you and give you peace. Every word of that blessing is true today because of Jesus for everyone that belongs to him. It's no longer a petition, but it is a proclamation. So how do we deal with the brokenness of the world? of the fallen world around us. How does Jesus deal with that? What if our lives had been broken because of the brokenness of the world? I want to talk about that second kind of brokenness for the world for a moment, the brokenness of the fallen world. And I want to think about another story from John's Gospel, chapter 11. You know it. It's the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. You remember that after their brother Lazarus' death, the words of both of his sisters, Martha and Mary, that they spoke to Jesus are the very same words that haunt us in our suffering. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's the thought that arises in our own mind every time there's pain in our life that's disconnected from justice or when there's suffering that is not the result of guilt but of the brokenness of the world. And we ask the question, couldn't you have prevented this, God? When a person suffers needlessly, when pain seems random or worse than that, unjust, the appeal to the God of mercy and justice rings 
throughout Scripture. How long, O Lord, why do the righteous suffer? Or in this case, in the case of Lazarus, see how much Jesus loved him. And those words are set right up against these words. He healed the eyes of the man born blind. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus loved his dear friend. So why did he die? I mean, Lazarus was a righteous man, not an enemy of God, not a wicked person. This must have caused Mary and Martha to wonder, is there no justice in the world? Is there no compassion from God? You see, what we often hope for from God is prevention, right? I mean, in the face of the brokenness of the world, we want to be spared, don't we? We don't want to be bent or bruised or broken because of the brokenness of the groaning world. Jesus even taught us to pray that we might be spared from this day of trial and trouble and testing. And yet, for reasons beyond our own grasp, God chooses not to major, major in prevention. But God opts for something way stronger than prevention. It's something that we call redemption. And we see it, too, in the Lazarus story. Now, while we often call what happened to Lazarus as a resurrection, that's not exactly right. Yes, Lazarus was raised from the dead, absolutely. But he eventually died again, didn't he? A natural death. And so we might describe that more accurately as a resuscitation. I mean, he wasn't raised in the same way with the same kind of body that Jesus would be raised later with a perfected and glorified body that is incorruptible. Now, don't get me wrong, I think Lazarus and his sisters and all of his friends were pretty excited when he came walking out of that tomb that day at Jesus' command. But resurrection is what awaits every believer that is in Christ Jesus. The resuscitation that Lazarus experienced was just a sign, a taste of the resurrection that is to come. It's a clue suggesting what God will do about the brokenness of the world. I mean, resurrection doesn't tiptoe around death. <laughs> resurrection faces it dead on. It, it breaks the power of death completely. Resurrection is the complete reversal and undoing of death. And that's the power of redemption. Just as resurrection is stronger than death, so redemption is more powerful than prevention. Think about it like this. There's an artist, and she's painting a mural on the side of a building downtown. And she doesn't put any tape around it, you know, don't cross this line, um, don't, doesn't put cones around it to prevent people from getting it. She's not worried about it being defaced. In fact, go ahead, deface it. I'll take what you've added to it and make my mural more beautiful than it ever was before. Or imagine a chess player, unafraid of his opponent's strategy, 
I mean, it takes a certain kind of genius for a chess player to block every move that his opponent wishes to make. But it's on a different order of brilliance altogether that says, I don't care, whatever your move, move, I'm still going to put you in checkmate. I mean, it's one kind of power to say, you shall not harm me. It's a whole nother kind of power to say, go ahead, do your worst, I will prevail. On the cross, Jesus absorbed the full weight of evil and the judgment of God against it. Jesus became the sin that leads to death, and he became the curse that infects God's world. He drained the venom from the serpent. He drank the poison down to the last dregs. He died the death that is at once sin's wage and God's verdict. And on the third day, the Father raised him up from the dead. And now, because of his resurrection, death has been swallowed up in victory. And only God can do that. Only God can take the brokenness and bring blessedness from it. Only God can make blessedness come through brokenness. So you see, Jesus takes the brokenness of the world and he gives us hope. And whether that brokenness is from our frailty or our failure or the fallenness of this world, we are still God's image bearers. And this is still God's world, the world that God created, the world that God blessed. You see, the sin and the suffering, God doesn't prevent. And, but they're not beyond his capacity to redeem. What God blessed, God will redeem. God has the power to make his blessings come to pass over and against the infection of evil. God the creator blesses. God the redeemer carries that blessing out to its completion, even through the brokenness that comes. You see, God's redemption makes even the broken become blessed. And God did this by becoming the broken. In Jesus, the, the blessed God, man of God, became the broken human so that broken humans could become God-blessed. In his book, Life of the Beloved, Henry Nouwen speaks about two ways that we can respond to our brokenness. He writes about befriending our brokenness and then putting our brokenness under the blessing. I'm going to talk to you first about befriending our brokenness. And what I mean by that is by to face our brokenness head on, to run toward it, and then befriend it. Now let's face it, our most usual reaction to our brokenness is to run away from it, isn't it? It hurts 
to face our pain. We don't want to do that typically, and so we run the other way. We look at pain as an unwelcome intrusion into our lives, something that shouldn't be there. It seems like it would be way more painful to face it, and so we choose not to, usually. But I can tell you in my own life, in those times when I have chosen to face my pain rather than run from it, that's when healing comes. Because when I run from it, all I do is prolong it. But when I step into my pain, it is then that God can go to work and start the healing of my brokenness. My friends, we need to turn our brokenness and see it not as an enemy but as a friend, to claim it as an intimate companion because our brokenness is as much a part of our uniqueness as is our chosenness, as is our blessedness. Because you see, it's when we face our brokenness that God can really go to work and heal us. And that's one reason we offer the Break Free class here at Anderson Hills four times a year, because in it, we help people face those broken places in their lives, and to allow Jesus to come into those places and begin to start the process of healing. The second response that Nowen talks about to our brokenness is to put it under the blessing. As I said, our pain and our brokenness are often so hard to face because we live with them, we deal with them, we carry them around with us as though they are under the curse. We view our pain and our brokenness somehow as confirmation of our negative feelings about ourselves. It's like saying, I always thought, suspected that I was useless and, and worthless, and now it proves it because of what's happening to me. But my friends, the great spiritual call of the beloved children of God is to pull your brokenness away from the shadow of the curse and to put it under the light of the blessing. This is not as easy as it sounds. But when we keep listening attentively to the voice that calls us the beloved then it becomes possible to live our brokenness not as a confirmation of our fear that we are worthless, but as an opportunity to purify and to deepen the blessing that already rests upon us. And so our great task becomes that of allowing the blessing of God to touch our brokenness. And then our brokenness will gradually come to be seen as an opening toward the full acceptance of ourselves as the beloved child of God to whom God speaks blessing over. You see, to be broken is to be opened up to the grace of God. And when you place your brokenness in Jesus' hands, it becomes openness it is brokenness that opens us up to the grace of God. And it is grace that puts us together again. You see, the goal is to let the grace of God redeem and restore and repair. There's an old Japanese art of mending broken pottery. 
It's called kintsugi, and it means golden joinery. What it is, it's the art of, of joining broken pieces of pottery with lacquer that's been dusted or mixed with powdered gold. And the philosophy behind this method of art treats the breakage or the crack as part of the history of the object, something that, that makes it what it is rather than something to be masked or covered up or, or hidden. And so the result is a bowl or a vase that is more beautiful, more aesthetically complex, and more valuable than the original piece. And that sounds like grace to me. Grace that takes what is broken and puts it back together in such a way that it is more beautiful and more valuable than it ever was before. It's that grace that allows the former alcoholic or drug addict to now be the one that speaks power into the life of that who is them who is still struggling with addiction and sets them free and gives them the power to step forward. It's that same power that allows a woman who suffered with cancer and has beaten it to speak into the life of someone who's struggling with that right now so that they can overcome it too and know that Christ is with them. It's that same power that allows the former atheist who was far from Christ to somehow be the one that comes to Christ and is the greatest evangelist for him in the world today. And so where is the brokenness in your life? And how are you going to let God use that to make something more beautiful than ever existed before? Is your brokenness from your own failure or something you're carrying from the fallenness of the world? Friend, let your brokenness open you up to the grace of God. Because when grace comes rushing in, it doesn't leave us broken in our sin. It heals us. It restores us. It cleanses and forgives. It makes us new in a way that is more beautiful than we could have ever imagined. It is grace that is the gold that holds our broken pieces together. Let Jesus take your broken life today, whether you're broken by your own failure or by the fallenness of this world, and place your broken life in the hands of Jesus and see what amazingly beautiful thing he will do. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we thank you and we praise you for taking us and blessing us and in this moment, as we're reminded of all the ways that we are broken children, your broken children, we thank you, God, that you know our pains and our hurts, our brokenness better than we know them ourselves. And you look at them and you see something beautiful in us. You see something that you can use. You see the way that you can bring glory to your name and that we can be a part of your mission in the world to bring healing and hope to others. So God, we place our brokenness in your hand. Would you bring something new out of us today? Would you take our old wineskins and make them new? Would you turn us in 
to something glorious for you. We pray in your powerful name. Amen.